Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. This week's texts are for year C, proper six, so it would be late in the, the spring. Uh, if you've got a Easter that's not running really late, you'll have this week in your year. The Old Testament text is 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 26 through chapter 12, verse 10, and then also verses 13 and 14. The epistle from Galatians 2, verses 15 to 21, and then skipping ahead, chapter 3, verse 10 through 14. And the gospel text is Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through chapter 8, verse 3. It's a strange set of readings in a couple of ways. First, um, each of them spans across chapter divides, which is a little unusual in the lectionary, but also the first two especially, the Old Testament and the Epistle, leave you scratching your head because you don't have the context. They, they start so abruptly, you're actually missing a lot of the meaning of the text because you don't know what just happened. So as we look now to our Old Testament reading from 2 Samuel 11.26 to 12.10, as well as 13 and 14, I would encourage pastors to include more of this text. Truly, as you read this in church, start earlier. I mean, does it mean you have to read all of chapter 11? Maybe. This is a story our families no longer know. I used to think that this account of David and Uriah the Hittite and Bathsheba was maybe one of the most well-known Old Testament accounts, but I remember a couple of years ago I asked the kids in confirmation class because we were talking about Sixth Commandment, adultery kind of things, and none of them had heard this account before. That's not good. And this is Israel's great king. There is a text that refers to David following after the Lord with all of his heart, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. Bathsheba's son is the one who will carry on the Davidic line. It's going to be... David, Bathsheba, having a son named Solomon, who becomes the next king, then she ends up being in the lineage of Jesus because of all of this. Important stuff, but the context isn't there. Let me just read the first paragraph, and again, you'll see what I mean if you don't have the context. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased Yahweh. If that's all you have, the last statement makes no sense. Why does this displease God? I mean, truly, strip out the text. Verses 26 and 27a. Uriah dies, leaving Bathsheba a widow. She mourns her husband, and after she's done mourning, the king marries her. Together they have a son. All of that is actually well and good. If that were all it was, David did a good thing. He took a widow into his home. He gave her a family. He provided for her. So we need context. Maybe the best way for a pastor to do it, would this, this would be a good example of a text that before you read it, you simply give a short summary of what's going on. That David committed adultery, had an affair with Bathsheba, and then murdered her husband Uriah to cover it up. I mean, you don't have to go into all the details. That would be enough. In the spring, in the time of the year when the kings go off to war, and David was supposed to have gone off to war with his men, David stayed home. He sees a beautiful woman bathing on her roof, and sends for her. The two of them have sex. She becomes pregnant. David panics, decides that he has to cover this up rather than confess his sin. So what's he do? He sends to Joab, his commander, has Uriah sent home back to the king to basically under the guise of you know bearing a report about how the battle's going. And so Uriah gives David the report of how things are going. David sends Uriah home. At least he tries to. In David's mind, if he goes home, then he'll sleep with his wife. Nobody will know the better. 
Uriah won't know. The town won't know. It'll all be okay. David's willing to lie, cover up his sin, and allow what would be his child, a son, to be believed to be somebody else's kid and thus have very little, if any, role as a father to that boy. None of this is good. Uriah, though, a standout man, he refuses. And his reasoning is with the ark of the Lord out in battle, and the men of Israel, his brothers, are out in the battle, and they're not sleeping in their homes. Why should he have such a comfort? David then gets him drunk and tries to send him home, and instead he again doesn't go. So after these two attempts, David writes a letter to Joab, the commander, that he is to put Uriah in the front of the battle, where its fighting is fiercest and in the proper moment withdraw, so that Uriah will be slain by the enemy. So again, the Ammonites at the city of Rabbah. In Joab's defense here, the king has the power of the sword. That's a Romans 13 reference, but the king has the power to judge. He has the power to put to death. The king has not given Joab the reason. Joab does not know what Uriah has done. He can, he can assume that Uriah has earned this, even though Uriah is innocent in the matter. So this is all on the king. This is not on Joab. Bear in mind here that Uriah is even one of the mighty men of King David. When you get the list of 30-some mighty men, he's one of them. I'm not saying that to make this seem even worse than what David did, but evil thing. So he seeks to hide his affair, and it displeases Yahweh. So at this point, Uriah's dead. Bathsheba mourns over the death of her husband. The period of mourning in verse 27 would probably refer to a week, seven days, at which time David brings her back to his house. In that way, the timing would not be a shock to the community. Not much time has passed. They had sex. She's going to recognize pretty quickly her pregnancy. David sends for Uriah. I mean, the account with Uriah is only going to take a few days, and then a week goes by. We could be just a month into the pregnancy, maybe at the earliest here. So it's not going to be a surprise when, oh, look, they have a child. Congratulations, king. Right? That's going to be the community's view, and that's what David thinks he's done. He thinks he's gotten away with this uh, whole affair. That brings us to the Lord's rebuke, chapter 12. And Yahweh sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As Yahweh lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan is a prophet, the one God has sent to King David to share his word with the king. And he does. And this account, even though from the get-go to the reader it's going to sound like a, basically like a parable, we know it's not a true story, but a teaching moment. David doesn't hear it that way. David, as king, thinks that the prophet is bringing him an account for judgment that has happened in his kingdom. And he gives a judgment at the end of the text. 
So the account is pretty straightforward, pretty simple, that you have a rich man and poor man that live near each other. The poor man, who has very little, has this one little lamb. He has raised it like his own child. It has lived with him, he has loved it all those years. And then when a guest comes, a visitor, a traveler to the town, to the rich man, instead of taking from his many, he steals the one lamb from this poor man. He kills it, uses it to feed the guest. Rightly so, I mean, that should bring anger, right? That's not just. It's theft, it breaks the commandment. Seventh commandment, the way we would count them. Thou shalt not steal. And so David, again, thinking this a true account, renders judgment as Yahweh lives. That's an oath. The man who has done this deserves to die. The king has such power. However, notice instead he he does soften a bit. He says he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing because he had no pity. That is perhaps a softening. So instead of dying um, simply a, a, a strong repayment, although that doesn't put back what he's taken, right? If you take a child or something that's like a child to a man, you can't put that back. I mean, you can give him a lot of lambs in its place, but that doesn't replace what he's lost. That could simply be an addition to death here, that he dies and from his property is taken and given to the man. Maybe we should read it that way. Verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of Yahweh? to do what is evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Again, without the full context, you don't even get the affair here. The adultery doesn't show up in this text. we got to have the full context. Anyway, Nathan pins David here. Well, Yahweh pins David here, right? It's God's word sent by the prophet, through the prophet. You are the man. You've rendered the judgment. It sits on your own head. This is what you've done. You are the rich man. Uriah was the poor man. You had everything you could possibly want, and then some. Uriah had one wife. And you took her. This text, this paragraph, can I make this like a 95 Theses kind of moment? Luther posted the 95 Theses on the castle church door in Wittenberg, not because he wanted to start a revolution, not because he wanted to change and create a new church, but because he wanted to debate. He wanted to debate with the other theologians over what was going on in the church. I think we need to post this verse, and our theologians need to talk about it. American culture has shifted quite a bit over the last decade, two decades, And while I cannot see the future, it is nearly impossible to imagine at this point with the the legalization of same-sex marriage and all the things that have already followed that, it's impossible for me to imagine that polyamory is not coming. This text challenges the current state of the church. I think it is the opponent's strongest argument in all of Scripture. I think they could go to other examples, 
right? If they wanted to try to disprove Christian teaching, they could go to the many examples of polygamy in the Old Testament, and they do. I haven't yet heard the argument built around this verse, but this is the one that does it best. And that's why we need to talk about it. We need to be willing to have our theologians study this text and let the people know at large. So why am I saying this? This is God speaking to David. I anointed you king over Israel. So his king, dumb, his reign comes from God. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. God saved him from Saul who sought to kill him. I gave you your master's house, that's Saul, and your master's wives into your arms. Saul's wives are given to David as his. That's what the text in English plainly says. And gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. If this were too little, I would add to you as much more. So if what I've given you already isn't enough, pray, ask, I would have given you more. And in the context, is he talking about the kingdom? Is he talking about the land? No. What's the problem? David saw a woman he didn't have and he wanted her and he slept with her and killed her husband for it. If this were too little, I would have added to you more. If the wives weren't enough. That's the challenge of this text. That God is saying he would have given David more. Terms to know uh, in that conversation, polyamory is where American culture would go if it goes. Uh, Poly, much. A more, like in uh, Italian kind of languages, love, many loves. Biblically, you can't make a case for that. Uh, the term for having multiple husbands is polyandry, from andros, a Greek word for man or husband. Polygamy is many marriages. Polygyny is from the, the gunos, Greek word for woman or wife. So polygamy could happen in the U.S. Polygyny, the U.S. would never settle for that. It would be polygamy or even polyamory, uh, many marriages or simply many loves, and the, the disdain for that taken away, right? It would no longer be considered shameful, culturally speaking. We might already be to that point, quite honestly, even though we're not to polygamy at this point. Anyway, just different terms, polyamory, many loves, polygamy, many marriages, polygyny, many wives, polyandry, many husbands. We need to discuss this. We haven't in a long time because the government has said you can't have more than one wife, more than one spouse. And while we can sit here and say that's good, that was faithful, thank you government, when the government says something that doesn't counter, contrary to God's word, we just listen to them. So they said, don't marry more than one person. We said, okay, we won't. But if they change, we need to be prepared to give an answer for when the opponents come at us with this text. Why have you despised the word of Yahweh? We all do that. right? That's what sin is, is a despising of God and his word, the doing of evil in his sight, specifically for David striking down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and taking his wife. It's not even the taking of his wife after death. It's the taking of his wife before, right? It's the adultery that was committed and then the murder to cover it up. Therefore you shall, the sword shall never depart from your house. So here's one of the punishments God is bringing upon David. It's actually threefold. The first, violence upon his house. David's going to be a king who's at war 
constantly throughout his time of reign, or at least almost constantly. It's a frequent thing. It's why God doesn't let him build the temple, for he's a man of violence and war. But his son, Solomon, whose name means peace from Shalom, he gets to build the temple. We skip over verses 11 and 12, which are more punishment related to David and really his other wives, that this affair he has done privately, well, God is going to bring one against him who will do it publicly. That'll happen in a few chapters uh, with his son Absalom in his rebellion against dad, that David will leave some of his concubines behind as he flees Jerusalem to care for the house, and Absalom will go into them. So we skip that part of this punishment. That was part two. Part three, I think part three will be seen by Christians as the harshest, and it's the, it's the one we get in the text, and it might be the only one that some people hear as punishment for what David has done. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against Yahweh. And Nathan said to David, Yahweh also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned Yahweh, the child who is born to you shall die. So David confesses his sin, and then Nathan the prophet responds that God has put his sin away. I don't like that English translation. The verb here is to pass over, to cross, to go through, to go beyond. Oftentimes it's used with uh, like a river, for example. So Numbers chapter 32, that they passed over or crossed over the Jordan. They went beyond the Jordan. This is what God has done for David's sin. Now, that may make you think, right, he's passed over David's sin. That sounds a lot like Exodus chapter 12 and the Passover. The Hebrew there has a different word in Exodus 12 for the Passover, although this verb, aver, does show up in Exodus 12, but in the negative sense. Verse 23 of Exodus 12, Yahweh will pass through, so he's going to pass through the land of Egypt that night. Yahweh will pass through to strike the Egyptians. When he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, Yahweh will pass over the door will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. So the passing through Egypt, that was this same verb we have here, passing over Egypt, that was, that was a different verb, the one that we use for the name Passover for the holy day uh, from the verb Pesach. So this is Aver, if you're knowledgeable of Hebrew, as you listen in. So he's passed over David's sin. He's gone beyond David's sin. It's not quite the forgiveness language that we might like to hear. But the Lord has done away with the sin nonetheless. And then, and then we get the third punishment. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned Yahweh, the child who is born to you shall die. And that's a really hard word. I think your typical hearer in the pew on Sunday morning is going to struggle with this phrase in particular. So if you're a pastor listening, I think you have to deal with this one. This is not contradictory to the Old Testament law. You may be familiar with Deuteronomy 24, verse 16, which is cited in 2 Kings 14 and in 2 Chronicles 25. So it's in the Old Testament three times. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers, but each one shall die for his own sin. But wait, that's not what we see here. This time the child is dying for dad's sin. The Deuteronomy text is part of the legal code that God gives to the Israelites. If a man in your town commits murder, you don't kill his son because dad committed murder. Dad's the one responsible. If a son is a wicked and terrible guy as he grows up, you don't kill his dad for it. It's the son's fault. It's a legal code. This is not about God's divine judgment. The Lord created this child the Lord can put an end to this child. The child is a sinner. This little boy is a sinner, just like you and me. 
Death is the punishment I deserve. Death is the punishment he deserves. God can bring his judgment about in his timing. And he did. And David will certainly grieve it, without a doubt. But that comes in the text that follows, and we don't see that together. So maybe the note to to have and to hold on this one is that forgiveness does not always do away with consequence. In fact, we see that, don't we? All of our sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ, and yet, unless Christ first comes back, we will still die. Death is the punishment for sin. The eternal consequence has been taken away. We don't perish in hell forever. But there are still temporary consequences, temporal, in this time, for our actions. And this was David's. Our second text, the epistle from Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 to 21, and then skipping into chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. As we had with the first text, the Old Testament, and needing more context, so we need here. If you just start at verse 15, it actually doesn't fit. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Paul is writing to the Galatians. And while there are certainly some Jews in their midst, many of them, maybe even most of them in the congregation, are Gentiles. So what's going on? What's our context? I think that English translations, I can't say all of them, but certainly ESV, have made the mistake of closing off Paul's quotation too early and that this actually ties back to what Paul was saying before. So let me take you back just a few verses. Verse 11. The quote will start in verse 14, but verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. So Cephas is Peter, Simon Peter, Cephas means rock in Aramaic. Peter means rock in Greek. I opposed him to his face. So Antioch, a major city in the Syrian area there, not terribly far to the north of Jerusalem and Judah. Peter and Paul are there, and they get in an argument. Paul rebukes Peter. Why? Verse 12. For before certain men came from James, so this would be James, the head of the church in Jerusalem, brother of Jesus, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So Peter is doing the thing that the Christian does. He's living together amongst the brothers. Jew and Gentile alike. They're just acting as the early church did. Go back and read Acts 2, how they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They ate bread together. They broke bread together every day in their homes and so forth. Peter's doing all of this with Jew and Gentile alike. Doesn't matter. And then some of the heads of the church from Jerusalem show up, and he stops. He stops interacting with the Gentiles, and he only eats his food with the Jews. Why? Well, there is a teaching, and the group, we might call them the Judaizers, who sought to make new converts to Christian faith follow Old Testament Jewish laws. They believed you had to be circumcised, and that's going to be a major theme of this letter. In order to be in the church, circumcision was the entry into the Old Covenant. If you wanted to be part of the Old Covenant people of God, you had to be circumcised. So when people joined, they circumcised them. Circumcision is no more. And that's something that it took a while for some people to realize. And so, because these men aren't circumcised, they're not really part of the church, and so it's not good to spend this time with them. Uh, They're unclean, they're sinners, avoid them. That's the picture. That's what Peter's doing. That's why Paul says he stood condemned. This is not good. It's, it, it's wicked. It's evil. Verse 13, the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Barnabas, 
Paul's missionary traveling companion on the first journey, that he and Barnabas are the ones who planted these churches in Galatia together. In fact, from the text of of the book of Acts, you might even argue Barnabas was the one in charge of that trip. The Galatian Christians know him, and he was fooled. To be a hypocrite in the Greek language means to basically to act. Like we would think of an actor playing a role. Uh, we don't view that as bad, but they're pretending to be someone they aren't. That's what the word hypocrite means. The Jews are pretending to be somebody they weren't. Peter was pretending to be something he wasn't. He was not making the connection clearly any longer of what it means to be a Christian. So, verse 14, when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all. So he calls him out publicly for public sin. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? There's a lot in that one, isn't there? So if Peter is already changed in this way, if Peter is no longer believing he has to keep the Old Testament law in order to be saved, why now is he forcing these Gentiles to do it? ESV puts a quotation bracket at the end of that. Take it away. Let's read verses 15 and 16 as still part of Paul's rebuke of Peter in Antioch. It makes sense that way. We ourselves, Paul and Peter, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So in this light, if we keep this as part of his conversation with Peter instead of with the church in Galatia, then we can see verse 15 in a different way. We ourselves are Jews by birth, so Paul and Peter not Gentile sinners. That would be a mockery of Peter's hypocrisy, of the Judaizers' hypocrisy, right? That's the Judaizers' view, that the Gentiles are worse, that the Gentiles are sinners, they're somehow other, they're outside, they're not clean, they're not okay. Peter has a whole dream about the clean, unclean thing, a vision from God in Acts 10. Paul is not speaking that as though it is what he believes. The shift comes in verse 16. This is what you're holding on to right now, but here's what we know. Verse 16 then becomes perhaps the cleanest, clearest, straightforward proclamation of how we're saved. We know a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. How are we saved? How are we justified? Justified means to be made right with. Think justice. What's that look like? How do we become just? Not by our own work. Not by keeping the law. Only through faith in Jesus. We'll talk more about that here in just a moment, but it continues. We also have believed in Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Can it be said any more clearly? You cannot be justified no matter how hard you try. You can go back to the Old Testament law. You can spend every waking moment of every day trying to keep it faithfully. Paul would certainly guarantee you that you can't, as he does. Romans writings, as he says, no one is righteous, no, not one. All have fallen short. All deserve the the penalty, right? We None of us have met the perfection that the Lord requires of us. In this way, Ephesians 2, which is the text I think Lutherans prefer to go to, and is a beautiful text, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Again, clear, straightforward, beautiful text, Often called the Lutheran verse. Many of you probably have that one memorized. Good stuff. But Ephesians 2, Galatians 2, both say it. Both put it very forward clearly. 
Um, and that makes it easy for us to remember. I mean, the two epistles are right next to each other in the Bible. It's chapter two in both of them. Thank you, uh, Lord, for making it easy in that regard. Ephesians 2 talking about how we're dead in our trespasses and we were made alive in Christ Jesus. Dead men can't do stuff. So two very useful, beautiful texts for this idea of how are we saved. And it's simply, purely gift. Can't earn it. Can't be done. Where does the quotation end? So I'm making the case we at least have to run Paul and Peter's conversation here through verse 16. It could run through the end of the chapter. It is clear that it does not begin chapter 3. So we go to the end of the chapter in verse 21 in this text, this reading together, but then we skip over the start of chapter 3. Chapter 3 readdresses the Galatians. So I'm, I'm okay with running the quotation mark all the way to the end of verse 21. I'm not sure where to put it. 17 to 21 aren't as necessary to have it lumped together to see it's part of the conversation. It could be the bridge. I don't know. But let's read those verses. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Arguably, Verses 17 and 18 might be the most confusing verses in the book of Galatians. If we read them through our current Lutheran lens and understanding, they don't make a lot of sense. We need to continue to read them in light of the conversation that's happening in the text. If in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, so now, without the law, as Paul has just described, we too were found to be sinners, that is, breaking the Old Testament laws, not being circumcised, not following the proper dietary laws, not holding to the Sabbath, those kinds of things. Is Christ, then, a servant of sin? In other words, is Christ teaching us to break the law? To be lawless people who reject the Old Testament? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. The Old Testament law has been torn down. Again, circumcision, dietary laws, those things are no longer applicable to the Christian because of what Christ has done. And so if we put those back in place, as the Judaizers were, demanding the Gentiles be circumcised, then I prove myself to be a transgressor because I haven't followed them, right? Peter's no longer doing those things, so if he rebuilds it, he's showing his own sin. Paul's not doing those things. If he rebuilds it, he's showing his own sin. So again, it makes sense to keep the quote going. For those of you struggling with that one, Greek doesn't have the quotation mark. Um, it's just not part of the grammar structure. So we have to put it where we think it fits, because English uses that symbol where the Greek didn't. For through the law, I die to the law so that I might live to God. Through the law, I died to the law. I can't do it. I couldn't keep it. I didn't keep it. I can't keep it. And because I couldn't keep it and didn't keep it, I know I'm a sinner who needs to be saved. So the law killed me, but the law also pointed me to Jesus. The law also gave me life in Christ. And what this means then is that the law is not master over me. I don't have to spend every waking moment wondering how I have to keep the law right now. Am I working too much on the Sabbath? 
Is my hand going from my plate to my mouth too many times? Have I walked too far? These various pharisaical laws that were in place. No, I don't have to do that. Instead, I can spend my time, I can give my efforts to the next verse. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved himself and gave himself for me. I can spend my time seeking to serve Jesus, letting Christ live through me, letting Christ live in me amongst the community where I am. Jesus numerous times in the gospel accounts, gives us the purpose of life as love God, love your neighbor. I can do that. Yes, I still sin. Don't not hear that, but right that becomes the focus. How do I love my neighbor right now? How do I serve my neighbor right now? What do they need? Rather than, uh, again, how do I keep this one particular law in this one particular moment? How do I love And that's precisely what Peter wasn't doing in that moment as he was not loving those Gentiles, but he was trying to figure out how to keep the law. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Christ's death is in vain. It is worthless if we can save ourselves. That's not what the law is for. The law was never for that purpose. The law was never about salvation. In honesty, right, the law was about loving your neighbor. I mean, look at the law. Look at the Ten Commandments. First three, love God. Rest of them, love your neighbor. This is why the New Testament can say the entire law is summed up in this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love. They didn't always see it that way. Right? Salvation is a gift. Paul is not nullifying the grace of God. He's not nullifying the gift of God. You are his. Just as the Gentiles and the Jews both in the city of Antioch were his. He gave himself for us. In Christ we are saved. All right, we skip over verses 1 through 9 of chapter 3. We never get them in our three-year lectionary. I'm not going to read all of it. Um, I think... Maybe part of why we don't get it is verse 1 sounds harsh. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? As I mentioned before, clear shift. Paul definitely at this point talking to the Galatians and no longer to Peter. So run that quote to wherever you think it fits, but definitely at least through 16. Now he turns to the to the church that he's writing to, and he asks them a very clear question. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Gentiles, how did you become Christians? How did you get saved? Was it because you were really great people? Or was it simply because it was given to you by hearing? Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing. You heard, the Spirit gave you faith. That's the point that the Gentiles should so easily recognize, right? It wasn't by my doing. Thanks be to God that he shared his gospel with me. Thanks be to God that he created faith in me. That's something they already know. They're backsliding from that. They're, They're not recognizing everything rightly in the moment. That's why Paul has to write the letter. But they know this. And so he then follows up, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So if you began this way, if you began by gift, if you began by the Spirit simply giving, then why why do you think you have to continue it? Why do you think in order to remain in it, it must be about you? We're not perfected by our own works. It's not to say don't work. I didn't continue the Ephesians 2 text, but right after those beautiful verses that we know as the Lutheran verse, he said, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. We should walk in them. It is good to love God. It is good to love our neighbor. It is good to serve the people around us. It's why Jesus put us here. We are literally stewards of creation. It is our job to care for everything God has made. But, 
you cannot make yourself perfect. You cannot somehow re-earn your salvation. It's a gift. It's already yours. You have it. Just live in it. I mean, in that way, you could almost make like an analogy with clothing that you, you've been given by maybe it was your wife or maybe your parents that gave you this nice outfit. You have it. It's yours. You're wearing it. You didn't do anything to earn that. It's just given to you, this beautiful new garment of yours. Now go live in it. Walk about, love people, serve them, do what you got to do for whatever the day brings. But you don't earn it. It's just a gift. That's the picture clearly throughout all of the New Testament of how we are saved. It can't be better said than Ephesians 2 and Galatians 2. Before we hit the last paragraph, Paul also says in the text that we skip over that we are sons of Abraham by faith and that the Old Testament had prophesied that God would justify even the Gentiles. And he quotes Genesis 12, verse 3 for that, the promise God made to Abraham that one of his offspring would bless all nations. And Jesus did. His forgiveness, his salvation, his life, his resurrection is for all people, all nations. Thanks be to God. All right, our final paragraph then from Paul here is verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Very much continuing our conversation here from before, that those who are trying to be saved, those who are seeking the law for salvation, they're already cursed. Why? Deuteronomy 27 verse 26 is what Paul cites there in verse 10, that if you don't abide by all the things written in the book, and do them all. So you fall once, you're done. Cursed. Now in verse 11, it is evident no one is justified before God by the law. He then cites Habakkuk 2 verse 4, the righteous shall live, not by perfectly keeping the law, the righteous shall live by faith. The point we're making in the text again and again and again. The one who does them shall live by them is the call of the law, not of faith separate things. They don't work in the same way. The law and faith don't have the same function. We're saved by grace through faith, not by keeping the law. So then, verse 13, knowing that we were cursed, Christ became a curse in our place. Deuteronomy 21, 23, curses everyone hanged on a tree. So Jesus takes our place. One of the common ways you'll hear your pastor preach probably almost every week, right? He took your sin upon himself on the cross. He took your death in your place. He died in my stead. Uh, we call that the substitutionary atonement. He made us at one atone with God by substituting himself, by taking our death upon himself. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham to all the nations might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. We, Paul now talking collectively about the church in Galatia, and they have. They have received the spirit by faith. Just as many, many more have received that same spirit by faith in the generations that have since happened, including you and me. Our gospel text is not so stripped of its context that we can't fully understand it just as it is. Now, in context, it comes after John the Baptist's disciples asked their question of Jesus about whether he was the one who is to come or if they should wait for another. And then we just move right into this passage. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, 
when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. This is going to be the account of anointing Jesus. There are other such accounts in Scripture. Matthew 26, verse 6, Mark chapter 14, verse 3, John chapter 12. It's hard to say if they're all the same or not. They're very similar, a lot of overlap. Matthew and Mark, clearly with Simon the leper, who then has a woman in the house anointing Jesus' head. This is Simon the Pharisee here in Luke 7. Luke puts it a lot earlier than the others do. And in Matthew and Mark, it's during the context of Holy Week. In Luke, it's context much earlier. He's going to immediately afterward go through the cities and villages proclaiming the gospel. So I would make the case based on that, that little snippet, that this is a separate anointing from the one in Matthew, Mark, and John. John 12 suggests the dinner was held in Bethany to honor Jesus for raising Lazarus from the dead and that Mary, the sister of Lazarus, is the woman who pours the ointment. All of the texts use the word moru for the ointment or the oil or the perfume. Uh, So maybe even myrrh could be a nice translation to use here. I think that's where the English word comes from, is that Greek vocabulary word. But making the case maybe two anointings, but they both, if there are two, they both happen in the home of a guy named Simon. The one in Bethany, and this would be a different location then, perhaps. Although I suppose it's possible it's the same Simon, and it happened in his house twice. Once earlier, and then once again, kind of a a repetition, maybe a year, two years later during Holy Week. That wouldn't be unheard of. So you have Simon a leper, Jesus healed. This is Simon a Pharisee in our text that we have together today. So a woman of the city comes to him while he's reclining at table. That's just simply how they did it. Uh, They didn't have tall tables and chairs like we do. They had maybe a low table, if not just some kind of a rug or blanket or something that the food would sit on. They would gather around it. They would lay down on their side and they would use one hand to prop up their head. So elbow on the floor, hand on the face, and the other hand would be used to reach into the center to grab food to put on their own plate or simply to eat right away. So reclining together at the house around the table, and this woman comes before Jesus, and she takes expensive stuff, ointment here, translated, an alabaster flask, so that's fancy itself, and she's going to weep. She's crying because she knows the depth of her sin, and she she then wets his feet with her tears. She's crying so much. And then she takes her hair, and she uses it as the towel to wipe off his feet from having just again gotten them wet with her tears. That is a, I mean, that's disgusting, Right, when you think about it, especially considering their culture, foot washing was the, the lowest work of the, the lowest servant in the house. It was dirty stuff. And she's willing to use her hair to clean off Jesus' dirty feet from walking around the dirty village outside. And I, I mean dirty just by dirt, right? It was a dirt ground all over the place for the norm. And then she also kisses his feet. She pours ointment on them. She anoints do want to catch that anoint word. We certainly see her love in this, but the anointing is key. Jesus is the Christ, which is the Greek word anointed one. He is the Messiah, which is the Hebrew word anointed one. So Messiah and Christ are just the same word in two different languages. Jesus is the anointed one. Here he's anointed. Again, maybe also in the a separate account or same account of Matthew 26, Mark 14, John 12. 
This is where we see him anointed in scripture. Prophet, priest, and king. And it's a a low anointing, right? This is a humble thing. The Old Testament anointing, you would think of Samuel going to the king, the prophet going to the king and anointing him over the people, pouring oil over his head. This is done in a humbler way. Simon the Pharisee responds differently, though. If he were a prophet, so if he were a man of God, he would know who this woman is, who is touching him. And thus, by extension, he wouldn't have allowed it. She's unclean. She's not good. If she is unclean, she touches you. You're unclean. Don't let her touch you. For she is a sinner. And, and again, they use the sinner word to distinguish not sin, but people who are seen as lower, lesser. You have your, what they would view as faithful people who follow the Old Testament, even if they don't keep the laws perfectly, right? They're, they're viewing that as one group, and then the people who are outside of that are the sinners. Tax collectors, prostitutes are the two common groups mentioned, but there were others as well. Jesus answers him by telling him a parable. Verse 41, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So Jesus' parable, short, simple, two men owe money. 500 denarii, a denarius is a day's pay, denarii is the plural of it. So 500 of them is almost a year and a half worth of labor. The other man owes 50, so that's not quite two months. A sizable difference, right? Ten times the, the amount of money. The money lender cancels both debts. Which man loves him more? And Simon answers, the one who owed more, right? If you owed a year and a half's income, so it would be like $75,000 in today's economy, or if you owed two months' income, so that would be you know, $7,000, who's going to love more? Probably the one forgiven more. And that's the answer Simon gives, and Jesus says you have judged rightly. So then he turns to the woman who's been forgiven the larger debt. Her sins were many, he said, but she loved much because of it. She saw the mercy of God humbly because of how low she was. And so Jesus turns to her and forgives her. We'll come back to that. Jesus makes the comparison first to Simon, though. Simon is the host, and he has acted as a man of position, status, not a lowly one. He has not washed Jesus' feet. He didn't even give Jesus the water with which to wash his own feet. Right? You can imagine coming into the home. You've probably been in somebody's home where you have to take off your shoes when you enter the house. Uh, that idea on steroids, maybe. Um, come into the house. You take your sandals off. The master of the house typically is not the one to wash your feet, but again, a servant in the house, the lowest servant, if it's a large house, would do that job. But at the least, if you, you know, a smaller group, maybe you give him a bowl of water and he's able to wash his feet. You give him a, a rag or something he can dry his feet off with. Simon didn't do any of this. But this woman, who by Simon's own detail isn't even really all that welcome in his house, this woman has with her own tears and her own hair. 
you gave me no kiss. So uh, the greeting, the kiss of peace, for example. But she hasn't ceased kissing my feet. Again, feet, dirty, disgusting. We have people that think that about feet today. This will resonate with them well. You did not anoint my head with oil, which would be the normal move. She has anointed my feet. Again, the humility, the, the contrast. Just like in the parable of the 500 versus the 50, the contrast here. He's not saying Simon's not a sinner. He's identifying the sin of this woman, and it's great, and she knows it's great. And so she's humble. She comes before God humbly, seeking forgiveness, and she receives it. She's forgiven. She loves much. He was forgiven little, loves little. That's a way to teach Simon here. So yes, she's forgiven. She gets the gift, but Jesus is not ignoring Simon. Simon hears it. Simon is invited to process this truth about who God is and how things work. We don't actually hear of the outcome in Simon's life, as we often don't of the conversations Jesus will have with the Pharisees. Some believe Nicodemus is the primary example that we have. We don't know if Joseph of Arimathea was a Pharisee or a Sadducee. Um, he was one of the Sanhedrin, but those groups both were on that, that, that committee, that council. So at least Nicodemus, but maybe others as well. Now the people who hear Jesus speak forgiveness end up asking, who is this who even forgives sins? Not a challenge like it is in other spots where you know, the Pharisees rebuke Jesus saying that only God can forgive sins, so clearly Jesus is blaspheming. No, these men just are asking the question. They're stumped. They're puzzled. But Jesus, as he often says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Galatians text, sal salvation comes by faith. We receive it. This woman had faith. She trusted in Jesus. And she got to receive the gifts he gave. Go in peace. Peace with God. Reconciled with God. That's good news right there. All right, chapter 8. Soon afterward, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. So shortly after this account, which is why I'm making the case this is not the same as the one we have in Holy Week from Matthew and Mark, Jesus goes into the surrounding places, cities, villages, towns, all those places where people would be, and he tells them about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, Jesus reign, because he's king. And what that looks like, which is parables often do. The kingdom of God is the reign of Jesus Christ. And it's here, as he will often say, because he is here. He is king. He is enthroned now, forever, on his throne. And we get to be there with him in paradise. So, talking about his promises, telling the good news, the gospel, to all people. The twelve, the disciples, were with him. Also, women. Specifically, women he had healed of various either evil spirits, so demons, or infirmities, various sicknesses. Mary Magdalene, she's called that because she's from the city of Magdala. So Magdalene is a representative name for where she's from. She had had seven demons cast out. That's troubling, and that would certainly, like the woman who anointed Jesus' feet, show why she loves Jesus so much, right? She suffered greatly, and because she has been saved from that suffering, uh, she follows Christ in that way. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. That one's fantastic. It, we're not told if it was a demon or infirmities for Joanna that she suffered from, but she's in the list. And she's the manager of Herod's house. Well, her husband is. This is the highest-ranking man in the house of King Herod, who's a kind of a Jew, but doesn't care about Jesus at all, would rather see Jesus gone. And his, his chief servant's wife is a Christian. We'll phrase it that way. She follows Jesus. Fantastic. Great stuff. 
she's in a position to share with that house the good news of Jesus. And Susanna, many others. Many others, right? So it's not just the disciples traveling together, but also the women uh, who are with them. And these women provided for them, that is Jesus and the disciples, out of their means. Jesus and the disciples at this point have made the gospel their primary task. And just as you and your congregation today work together to make sure that your pastor who preaches the gospel to you as his primary task, that he and his family are cared for, that's what these women were doing. They were taking from their own households, from their own families, goods and finances in order to care for Jesus as he did the work that was needed to be done in his ministry.